0: Richard Brown, the CTO of R3. How are you, sir? I'm
1: really good. Thanks, Simon. Thanks uh, thanks, thanks, for having me.
0: Uh, thanks for being back on Blockchain Insider. You and I go a little ways back. Um, I thought it might be interesting to tell the story of how R3 got started and, and where you are now and, and kind of go on that journey. So in your own words, like what were you doing before R3 and, and what were the bunch of insights that kind of led you to
1: move in that direction? So I guess before well, before I joined R three I was I was at IBM I'd spent my entire career there in a variety of predominantly engineering roles um, software development and testing um, field pre sales solution engineering um, um, sort of like client consulting so a whole, whole bunch of mostly technical roles almost all in financial services um, so nothing really to do with blockchain at all and then I guess like many people I sort of went down the rabbit hole it must have been it must have been 2012 2013 you know, in hindsight when I was going down the rabbit hole maybe I should have bought lots of Bitcoin as I went but that was a uh, you know, you learn your lessons. Um, but I spent a lot of time really trying to get my head around how it worked because it just seems so intriguing. So I, I went down that same rabbit hole as everybody. But what I did that I guess was possibly a bit different and, and led me to where I ended up at, at R three was I started writing what I was discovering. So I started blogging and 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 just you know, trying to not not explain because that kind of sounds like you're an expert and I certainly wasn't. But I was uh, as I was as I was learning and pictures were forming in my head. I was saying, well, here's what I think Bitcoin means. Here's what I think the relevance is. This is what I think could. Be important to people in finance because I knew a lot about finance from from my day-to-day job and then I thought well actually there's an alternate thing to do as well which is to take what I know about finance and explain it in terms that would make sense to all these people who are suddenly discovering this new world of crypto economics and so forth and crypto finance and explain to them how the system that they're seeking to overturn actually works so I was, so I was riding this line between those two worlds and it and it seemed and it, it seemed to find a niche people seemed to find it interesting and useful and um, yeah so I did that for a while um, just in my spare time and I just sort of got me further and further, like I say, down the blockchain rabbit hole. Yeah.
0: Turning up at various um, blockchain meetups, bumping mm-hmm. into various characters like the wonderful Preston Byrne and others. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I remember the shout out to Preston. First time you ever met him, um, you walked away and said, "I've never met anyone quite like that before." And I think anybody who knows Preston, uh, we love him, but uh, interesting
1: characters back then. Yeah, well, actually, that is a really good point because I've, I've learned maybe just as I've got older, I've learned that my this whole thing about you know, first impressions, I'm just extraordinarily bad at it. You know, people there are quite often people I meet who I really like at first impression and then subsequently realized maybe that maybe there was less to them. And there were some people to whom I almost take a visceral dislike <laughs> the first time I meet them. And, Sorry, Preston, but you were one of them. Uh. Um, I thought, I just really can't get on with this guy. And then just after the, these, these crypto Mondays that you ran, I remember coming to the Barclays Accelerator in, in my land. You know, each Monday, the group of us would get together from different walks of life and different interests who were, who were interested in this topic. And just over time, I began to understand how Preston thought and how, we, and how he worked. And I grew to, grew to develop this really deep respect and admiration for him. so no he's a really great guy.
0: A really good guy and then the story kind of moves from there. There was this peak moment of uh, uh, kind of we like the technology but not the currency uh, which I think both of us had a hand in uh, kind of creating that narrative and I, I now personally fully regret. Um, but uh, that that was sort of around 2015, and enterprise DLT was going to be the big thing. There was a wave of momentum behind that. Now, talk to me about your involvement in you know, sort of helping set that up and, and how that transition happened.
1: Mm. So, so I guess you're right. So the, I mean, I didn't I didn't fully articulate my thinking until I had the space at R three um, you know, later in twenty fifteen to really think it through more fully. So I guess some of my writings before that were probably naive if I were to go back in and read them. I, I probably don't regret those those moments or those statements in the way that, that you've come to do because I think there is. I genuinely think there is something to it because the the thought process coming into twenty fifteen from the back end of fourteen was okay. There's this Bitcoin thing. The the insight that I think everybody always needs to remind themselves of is you know, Bitcoin you know, Satoshi didn't wake up one morning saying, hey, I'd like a blockchain or I want to put a blockchain on it. You know, he, he woke up, she woke up, they woke up, um, we believe and said, actually, you know what, we're going to try again. We're going to try and build a system of digital cash that has no central issuer, is unstoppable, is, is, is all that stuff. And that, that was stuff. their design.
0: That was yeah. their requirement. And I remember you early on talking about what's the requirement. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and that was the requirement that people need to keep in mind. Which so, led to that design. Which led to that design. So the, the real question was, what's the requirement? Mm-hmm. And what was the requirement in 2015 and has it changed?
1: So I always say that a lot of these requirements were intuited. There was a belief there was a problem to be solved, which is always, It's always, you know, I spent, as I said, most of my time at IBM, a lot of it in sales type roles where if, you, if you've if you got a solution looking for a problem, you can have lots of interesting, you, know, you can have lots of interesting conversations with clients, lots of interesting POCs, but those deals ultimately don't close. You have to solve a real problem. So I spent a lot of time thinking, well, we've got this new, it's, there's no new, there's not really any new computer, there's not much new computer science in Bitcoin. Maybe the consensus algorithm, that the, the, the application of proof of work to, um, to give this probability finality. But it's, it's mostly the, the application of existing techniques to solve the problem of, you know, uncensorable and un, un, unsuppable digital cash. But once you've got that architecture, it's natural to say, well, this idea of a system that ensures that everybody sees the same thing without a third party to tell them what the answer is, so that I know for sure that what I see on my computer is what you see on your computer. That, that exists now. Now, of course, the form it exists in with Bitcoin, with the crypto-economic incentives and the currency and the proof-of-work, you know, that's, that's one particular implementation. So the form we see in Bitcoin with, I know that what I see is what you see with different crypto economic incentives, the coins, the um, the proof of work and all the rest of it. That's one particular implementation that was needed to solve that problem. But you think, well, actually, if I just zoom out and think there's now a system that allows me to write software that allows me to know that this system is in sync with that system without requiring third parties to make it so, what could I do if I had one of them? And that was the starting off point because we're still in the solution domain. If I had one of them, what could I do with it? But you think, well, actually... a system that allows people to know that what they see is what their counterparts see, that allows me to know that what my computer sees is what someone else sees without some third-party reconciliation service forcing it. You zoom out a bit and think, well, isn't that really just the problem of business? You know, any Anytime you transact with someone, I've got my records, you've got your records, we maintain them separately, wouldn't life be easier if we knew for sure they were in sync? Mm-hmm. And now we've transitioned, and it's quite subtle, but we've transitioned there from the solution domain back into the problem domain. My problem is, we've got duplicated, overlapping, inconsistent records held by different parties. I no golden source. In theory,
0: every now and then we build some centralised body that gives us a golden source, but then they're a golden source for a bit of the answer, and then I've got this other golden source, yeah. and I've got this other one, and this other one, and actually I end up with 10 centralized bodies. So I have no centralized body anymore. Uh, So you can't centralize all of the things. Um, I think it was Dr. Lee Brain who said, if I created uh, one bank that was entirely centralized for the whole world, then I've got the biggest systemic risk in history. Um, But it would be the most efficient solution by by far. Uh, So there is this business problem. There is this risk problem that we're always trying to mitigate. Well, that's a good opportunity to take a natural pause for you and I and introduce two more characters who were involved in the early days. All right, so we're joined by uh, Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing all right, thanks. Uh,
0: you were there in the early days as well?
2: I, I was there in the early days. Not as early, I think, as, as this guy,
0: but uh, uh, not too long after. For the listeners, this guy equals Richard Brown.
2: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a camera here. I never know what's going on anymore. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: it, it's hard to know. And, and of course, we're joined by uh, Mike Hearn. And Mike, you came along in, what was it, 2016?
3: It's uh, 2015, I
2: think. 2015? Was it about
3: November, September time, something like that? I don't remember so, exactly. November, 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 October, November.
0: So you found, uh, you came along, and there was a bit of a thesis that Richard had been working on with DLG, as it was at the time, the District Ledger Group, and they were sort of getting getting off the ground, and they were looking for that vision of the future. You'd obviously come back, uh, you know, from you've been involved in software development for a number of years. Take listeners through kind of your narrative in the permissionless blockchain space, and what made you look at Cordova through a different lens, and what did you see in it. Um, yeah, well, so I
3: suppose, uh, you know, I came to this space through Bitcoin, of course, and I was one of the first um, Bitcoin developers and one of the first users, which uh, yeah, and I came to Bitcoin early because I was on the, the mailing list for Ripple, which was back then in a one man open source project by this Canadian guy, of course, eventually the name was sold and it became a company and a different thing. I got on that mailing list because before that I was involved in uh, this community of uh, crypt- uh, not cryptocurrency it didn't exist. So community currency researchers, mm-hmm. and they were interested in this higher level notion of uh, community-run currencies. So it's sort of a multi-step process that took me to Bitcoin. And then um, after five years of doing that, I concluded that project has sort of run its course, basically, and started wondering, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And I looked around and thought, well, I know a lot about blockchain, and it's getting to be, you know, people are getting excited about it in, in industry, not just in the sort of niche communities. Uh, yeah, so um, I noticed I, I met Richard at the Swiss Embassy, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh Noticed he had joined R3 and I just read a press release about, you know, the third bank joining or something like that and thought, oh, maybe they're actually going to do something and collaborate and then it won't just be press releases and in-house proof of concepts. So I called him up and said,
0: what are you doing? And so, talk to me about that conversation from your perspective, Richard. You meet um, Mike, and how does that conversation kind of go? What was the, was there a meeting of minds, or was there a like screw you, call the stupid, <laughs> screw the banks thing going on?
1: So I still remember. I w- so I was um, just before we did this, this, just before we did this interview. Um, I guess for, for your listeners, we're at Cordicon or um, the, the Corda annual conference, and I've just given my welcome presentation. And as I prepared for that yesterday, I went through um, went through my emails. I actually went, you know, I went to my inbox and sorted it or by sent mail, sorted it by, was it in reverse. Order and looked at the emails back from September 2015 just to see how this thing got started. Once I once I joined R three um, and the and then the story I told you know, the, the story I re, recreated was the first few first few weeks and months of of R three so you know, before Mike of course, which you Simon were involved in or Colin Colin was involved on, on the steering committee it was a really sort of like high intensity time where a lot of the high level concepts ideas came together but it was just that it was it was whiteboarding it, it was ideas there was there was no code at that point it was it was um, it, it was principles and it was concepts. So, and as we got to I guess it must have been late October, early November. Um, I, I showed a picture from then, which which actually had some of the original. I mean, fairly basic, with some of the original. Not all of them, but some of the original concepts in code, the state model, the use of UTXO rather than shared virtual machine, that kind of thing. But we're getting to the point where we actually had to stop prototyping and, and writing code. Um, and I still I still remember I was walking down Old Broad Street. I was in the City of London, so it was Old Broad Street. I must have been I must have been on. Well, I shouldn't name it, but I was probably on the way from Bank Station to to a meeting at UBS because I used to take that. You take that path quite a lot. Top of top of um, Old Broad Street, just where it hits um, hits the London Wall, and my phone rings, um, and it's like, and it's like, hello, you don't know me. This is Mike Kern. So I don't know how he got my number, but it was a call from Mike Kern. Maybe you'd emailed me beforehand and yeah, you said you I wanted to speak, but 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 I was speaking at Old Broad Street, and um, and it was, it was Mike sort of sounding me out, saying, i Look, looks like, you're doing something interesting? You know, is it something we should talk about? So I still remember that first conversation. So you first. picked Richard. Richard didn't pick you.
0: As yeah,
3: right. Because at the time I was busy with Bitcoin, but and I was deciding, I was looking around to say, what will I do next? Corded didn't exist at this point. Yeah. But, so there's an
0: opportunity to shape it
3: well I, yeah i didn't even know that at the time i just thought you know maybe i can be useful i was do- at the time i was self-employed doing con- like consulting and contracting and things i thought ah, oh, maybe they they can use some advice or whatever and then when i came out to talk to them they said oh you actually want to design a new system and and they've been thinking i've been thinking for a long time about if i you know if i had a chance to do bitcoin over from scratch what would this design look like and we've been thinking along very similar lines um in the the generalities mm-hmm. so that i was like well there's a, a clear I'm, I'm not gonna have to spend time convincing them that a bitcoin type data model is a good idea for example and that's bodes well uh, for the future and we just started brainstorming and prototyping so there was a meeting of minds
2: so there's you brought up an interesting point there about if you had to build bitcoin from scratch I, i'm curious a lot of people kind of look at this because they come from a cryptocurrency point of view mm-hmm. and they say corda or dlt or blockchain or whatever you want to call it from a permission point of view they don't necessarily see a value but you came in kind of from a very similar angle and you saw value what concretely do you think uh i know richard talked about from his point of view but uh, mike what do you think concretely blockchain in a quarter type sense brings to the world that didn't exist before
3: well i think um you know uh You nailed it before when you were talking about what Lee said, where the most efficient way would be to have everything be done by one corporation, basically, (laughs) in a sense, Um, if we ignore the fact that that would never work. You know, you just, when you look at what business programmers do all day and business software developers, um, the amount of just just sort of make work and nonsense they have to put up with um, is enormous because none of these systems, you know, IT has automated within an organization quite effectively. But between organizations, it's still often driven by fax machines or, you know, at best emailing Word documents back and forth and Excel spreadsheets, which is the equivalent of sending paper back and forth slightly better. And I felt like well, we, we could do much better. Um, And if we could create one shared database that the whole world could share, that we could put everything in, and solve all of the technical and social and political problems that would come with that model. Then we would have the IT infrastructure of like the one world, you know, corporation, umbrella corp kind of, uh, dystopia, but without the dystopia. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's what we spend all our time trying to avoid, right? Uh, that's, that's why Cord is open source and why we've got this sort of gov- fancy government mechanism for the Corda network. And, um, and when we've built the software, we've been building it on the assumption that, you know, what if R3 goes bad? What if uh, the quarter foundation gets malicious? Or, I mean, we've put in so many safeguards to prevent that. But even if it does, there's lots of knobs and buttons in the software you can push to override their decisions and, and do your own thing and go your own way. Um, so we, we hope to get the efficiency of that one world database,
0: but without. The, con- the concentration without the power, power. dystopia, without the dystopia, exactly. <laughs> so, talk to me about some of those checks and balances, Richard and, and Mike, as well, because I think there is this conception that uh, you know, if you tweet anything enterprise blockchain, you end up with this storm of hatred. You, people think you're pretty much shitposting posting as soon as you say it, and and actually, you're seeing real value there. You've spent a lot of your time looking at this, and I don't think. That it's through a lack of intelligence it may just be that there's a a chain of logic that's been missed by a lot of people so talk to me about those other governance things because there is a view that Corda and enterprise permission blockchain type architectures rendered by other uh, parties end up in this position of being either a useless or b something that becomes controlled by the man in air quotes
1: so, I mean, the, so the way I think about it is, and it, I was, I was, I was skeptical at first. But the when I saw the first draft, but the there are two white papers. Well, actually, three now. Two, two, the two main white papers were Corda. There's the intro paper, which I mostly wrote, and the technical white paper that, that Mike wrote, um, and the first draft I saw of the technical white paper from Mike, um, which we kept in the end. But I was skeptical of it. it, it the title is Corda colon a decentralized database. Mm-hmm. So not a distributed database, and it doesn't actually say blockchain, although it does later on in the in the document. And that, and I guess that's entirely to Mike's point that the idea was how do we have a shared database that is decentralized and and for me and then Mike can go far more into detail on this and, and get onto the government side of it but you think about you know what are some of the key concepts of, of you know, blockchain and quotes in general it's the idea that you know, you, you trust but verify you don't if somebody sends you some data you don't just naively believe it's correct or it's been correctly calculated because they say so that would be a centralized system or a system where you've got to rely there's a third party you trust when they send you the data they have to evidence how they calculated it or say you know, the previous data was this i assert it was correct and valid to transition it to this data because these are the rules we agreed beforehand would apply. These are the people who had to sign off on it. And that's entirely decentralized because it's a, just a matter for the parties to that transaction. You do you do need help in ordering transactions, so then you have to get into a question of, well, who, who governs the orderers, which gets you into the need for Byzantine fault tolerance of, of these things we call notary clusters. But this whole idea of, you know, I trust my own computer but I don't trust anybody else's, which is the essence of this, is how can I get my computer to a point where it can convince itself that things other people are telling it are right? Uh-huh. And if you can build a system that does that, you've kind of, you've kind of got the essence of the problem, I think.
0: Mike, anything to add on the governance side of that as well? So the technical side is I've got to convince myself that w- I know that what I see is the same as what you see. Um, but around that, I have to create software that can do that, that isn't being gamed, that can that can, that can can achieve that. How do you do that, uh, both in software, but I, I'm guessing 90% of the iceberg is not the software stuff?
3: Yeah. I, I mean, you know, when we've designed this um, system, we've tried to put as much... Um, into the software as possible, and whatever is left over that we don't have the technology to decentralize gets dropped in the sort of foundation with governance bucket. Mm-hmm. If you look at the the cryptocurrency communities, they, they attempted to avoid any form of structured decision making, structured governance, because they they said, well, the ideal is we ne- we don't have any. They failed to meet that ideal and ended up with a very strongly governed system, but you know, um, governed badly basically. <laughs> so, what we've tried to do is say, yeah, like we we minimize number of decisions and we minimize the power of the governing body of the network at least you can leave it and set up your own networks if you want to with different decision making or different decisions but we uh, and then what's left we, we put in place a board with a voting structure and make sure it's all very clearly spelled out but it's almost a bug that we need that you know if i knew how to get rid of that structure i would but the nature of software is that it's almost in—it's you know, very soft. It's it's very configurable. The moment you add a knob that people can tweak, everyone will disagree on where that knob should be. Well, so and you need a It doesn't exist in a closed system as it well as an, an outside
0: world that exists with
3: it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you you know, and, and people want to know how the system will evolve over time. And some of these things are fundamental things, like how quickly should people need to upgrade if we want to introduce new features? Mm-hmm. There's no technology fix for that.
2: that um, that's something I want to drill in on, like. People talk about how difficult it is in cryptocurrency systems where there's a lot of money at stake right behind that. If you don't upgrade, you might get forked off the network depending on what the change is. We can make different changes. Maybe we can enforce that. How does that happen in a quarter world? How do you
3: get people to update? Yeah, so Corda has this notion of, of what we call compatibility zones, but other systems will call them networks, um, which is a, a collection of parameters that are chosen. And um, in the cryptocurrency world, if you disagree with something like how many millions of coins should exist or something, then you edit the source code and you give it a new name and you release it. In Corda, we've taken everything we think people might disagree on and put it into a file, basically, and people can just make this little data file and that's where all the, the magic numbers and things are. So, um, and, and if the nodes that share the same file, the same set of network parameters, we call it, um, then they will be interoperable. And as part of the governance process, one of the parameters in this file is like the minimum version you need to be running of yeah. the of the protocol. So there's a whole process around how you change that. There's the flag days, people can kind of opt in or opt out and, and there's a tracking process for this. So you've got a, something a bit like what, some cryptocurrencies have experimented with, with on-chain governance. Right. It's not actually on-chain to avoid a circularity issue that some of those systems hit, but it's, it's technological in nature. And then you thrash it out. You know, we have a, we have policy systems and, you know, a board structure and we're setting all that up such that people can come to agreement
0: on, you know, conservatism versus rapid um, upgrades. And it's going to be different by industry, right? Because, um, the finance industry and the pharma industry and the healthcare industry and the uh, trade industry and the oil and gas industry all have different sets of requirements. And they may upgrade at different speeds, but they may need an element of interoperability between them where there's crossover. How, how does this allow for those sorts of use cases? I guess, you know, if you've got two networks, I guess, in, in this case, that both run Corda but run different versions that are incompatible, would it be as simple as one changes its file and then, in theory, it, it uplifts and the rest? Sort of starts to happen in a more automated way.
3: Yeah, so Corda has made a variety of guarantees around backwards compatibility. So the only situation uh, you would hit that is with one network is newer and one network is older, and then you know the the old the people on the older network want to join with the newer network, but then. There would be features they don't understand. The software yeah, doesn't yeah, understand, yeah. right? So they would need to upgrade first, so all of the new features um, in the system, new ledger features,
0: can be processed. And there's this other thing. You guys, is it a blockchain application firewall? If I said that right, there was something application firewall. Yeah.
1: So um, I think <laughs> I think Mike hates me for giving it that name, but it's um, but it's it's back to your point about who do we think so Corda, Corda is designed to be deployable by a very large range of organizations and mm-hmm. in the end state even like individuals with some of some of the work that that Mike captured right back in the early days of the technical white paper but but a lot of the early deployments are by large organizations mm-hmm. and you then get into the question of well what problem is enterprise blockchain actually trying to solve and it's to ensure that you know my systems are, are guaranteed to be in sync with your systems the reality is people they do their work in you know in, in Calypso or in, in sap you know, they, mm-hmm. they or, or Homegrown applications—that's what they do their work in. So they're the systems that need to be in sync with their counterparts. So if, but if the, but if the thing that is doing the syncing is is the blockchain node, that needs to be able to connect to your core books and records. It needs to be able to connect to your core systems.
0: It's got to get all the way inside your firewall. Yeah. it's got to get all the it's way inside your down. systems.
1: it has to live down there. So, but the problem is, this is well, I the I guess the dilemma is, this is a peer-to-peer, point-to-point, point-to-point network where the node has to be able to connect to its peers across the internet. So it becomes
0: internet. a threat and attack vector. Like this is this little lump of software from you guys could be inside my systems wreaking havoc if it's talking to the outside world and not doing so in an appropriate way.
1: Yeah. So you want a firewall You want the core business logic, next. You the core blockchain business logic next to your applications. But the bit that's actually exposed to the public internet needs to and we used to call it the float because it floats away, floats out into the internet. And that's the thing that's hardened. that's the thing that gets um, connected to from outside and routes traffic. So you allow these this, this software to be deployed in corporate data centers and yet nevertheless be able to transact securely over the public internet.
3: Yeah, and the key point about is, you know, companies already have firewalls, so you might say, well, what's, what's so different then? And this one is uh, cryptographic in nature. So whereas a traditional firewall makes decisions based on IP addresses, um, which can be uh, stolen or hacked, uh, BGP hijacking and so on is a, is a thing that happens quite frequently, especially these days. Uh, the of firewall is making its decisions based on public key cryptography. So it's much more robust to IP address changes, load balancing, um, you know, IPv4 versus six transitions. What it's checking is a verified legal identity. And and that's what businesses
0: actually care about. Absolutely. Am I transacting with that? The People, I think I am exactly, and is what I see the same as what you see exactly. Two fundamental yeah, questions. Yeah. Uh, so, talk to me about where we are now in 2018. We're here, as you mentioned. Uh, we are here uh, at Corticon. Um There's it's, it's a bigger venue than last year, and mm. it's, it, you, there's a lot of people in this space. Uh, don't know what the exact count is, but what maybe five, six hundred, something like
1: that. Something like that. Over a thousand, over a thousand registrations. So I think it's probably double the size of double the size of last year. Um, a cocktail party later, I think. There's about 600, 700 people coming to that. It's um, it's it, it's huge. I guess you probably yeah, it's, it's not really a party yeah. at that point, is it? It's almost like, <laughs> almost like yeah, a, a festival or something.
0: A, 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 you can't be out of money if there's a cocktail party.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's, it's 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 just really gratifying to see. I and mean, we talked about how we began three years ago, and just it, it, I guess it exploded once we open sourced code just uh, just under two years ago. Just seeing the number of people who've independently discovered it because you know we, we did a lot of our marketing in the early days just focused on finance, and it was the community, it was the adopters, it was other people who told us. Actually, hang on a sec. Why are you narrowly presenting this? This thing is applicable in insurance, in healthcare, in government, in oil and gas. So we discovered from the users who discovered it, no thanks to us, that this thing was broadly useful. So it's just great to see at the conference. I mean, Mike can talk about you know, where we're going, but I guess the highlights for me today are you know we shipped Corda Enterprise a few, I guess, a few weeks ago, which is you know, is 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 a commercial distribution of the open source platform, fully interoperable and with and compatible with the open source base. High performance, has the application firewall, supports you know enterprise databases. So it's, it's what some of the long- Larger companies need to go live with and there are people in the audience who are, who are using this who are either live or are about to be um, and it's just it's just, actually just great to see people who found this 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 tool it's just it's just it's just clay that they're molding with and it, um, it's, it's great to see
0: so what do you assess as Mike in in 2018 we've we've obviously seen um, a heck of a bull run in the in the permissionless blockchains through 2017 we're now seeing this new set of narratives emerge around sound money we're seeing a narrative around uh, web 3.0 from the Polkadot dot guys we're seeing the narrative um, coming from the DFINITY guys in A16Z, that blockchain and crypto is the next mega trend. Um, are you guys on the you know, the wrong side of history or are you seeing the convergence between the original thesis and where you guys started somewhere in the middle or, or are none of those true? What's the quote? Uh, we're on the right side of history because we intend to write that history. Yeah, uh, yes, <laughs> I like that.
3: Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what like the Polkadot guys are talking about or anything like that. Um, I don't see it in terms of catching the wave or however they they're talking about it um we're we're building software which is clearly useful i'm not quite sure i i agree with richard that we didn't see the potential for other industries i think we did but we wanted to focus you know we felt like we had to like keep like stay focused and
0: and your initial um,
3: stakeholders were all back yeah and and they wanted us to stay focused as well so um but then through the encouragement of the community we said well we can branch out and apply this in lots of other areas, and people want us to and what we don't want to be saying no to them because it's it's software we can't even say no it's open source so we may as well go with it and, and you know we're just riding uh riding that train all the way to the end i don't think um we worry too much about cryptocurrencies or if that's a trend or if we need to be doing something just for the sake of it it's more like do we have users who want it do they have something where they're saying we need this to do our project and if so then we'll we'll go do it
1: and you look at the work Todd's doing with enterprise tokens. You look at the work, you know, the open source work by um, you know, Richard Crook and his team with Cordite, You know, people are people are implementing tokens on on, on Corda. It's, yeah. it's happening. It's the beauty of open source.
0: And, and what does an enterprise token mean? What does a token on Corda mean? Is that different to uh, a token as we would know it as an ERC twenty in any fundamental technical way, or is it just different in d- design and governance? Simon's asking if we can do an ICO on Corda, <laughs> uh, <a> Corda
1: coin. <laughs> so, so, so the way I think about it, because I, I put a blog post out about this as well. Was you know, one of the, you go, back, go back to the original design work we did for Corda, we, we set ourselves um, three, you know, three use cases it had to be able to address in order to know that we were on the right track. One was, can we model a complex financial instrument with a life cycle that led to and uh, what became linear states and I guess, yeah, um, you know, the, the flow framework is needed to make that work, That the, um, the instrument there was a credit default swap. But the two other use cases we had were, one was a cash-like instrument, so a token if you like, um, a depository receipt, call it what you like, cash.kt is the file, um, and, and could we model a corporate bond? So, you know, So two-thirds of the initial use cases for Corda were can you represent real-world assets that are owned authoritatively on the ledger. We know who the issuer is, and they can have a life cycle, and they can be um, transitioned between different people. And that's kind of what I mean by an enterprise token. Either it's a natively digital asset where its it's authoritative record of existence exists on the Corda blockchain, and then it, it evolves and can be transferred, or it's a representation of an asset immobilized elsewhere. That broad space, I think that's where the wave is. You look at HQLAX, you look at the vision for Lendicom from Finastra, you um, you look at a lot of the use cases that are already live on Corda. They are enterprise tokens. They're they're representations of things that are ownable by real people in the real world.
0: And I think that real-world asset space is... Enormous in scope, uh, in scope and scale. I mean, it's all of the world's money and assets and value and world economy is kind of represented that way. So the the, the scale in front of that is, is kind of huge. I mean, this this cash
3: token that represents a deposit elsewhere was actually the very first Corda app ever written. It's it's simple and it was like Bitcoin like. So that's the one I started with. Roger is especially interested in this. You know, I've done some brainstorming with him on how would you implement a Satoshi style floating currency that is not backed by anything that exists purely in the digital realm um, on Corda. And um, you can certainly do it. And uh, we've got designs for that. And I, I keep meaning to one day just knock it up as a sample app or something. Yeah. The problem is we always go down this rabbit hole of, well, Bitcoin didn't work out that great. Can we improve on it? And, and then we end up like hitting these questions like, how do you distribute such a quarter coin or whatever? I mean, I'm not saying we would actually do it. But we talk about these things. And then Bitcoin had this mining, miners get the coins. But we don't really have miners, so, you know, do you introduce them back just to distribute? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, you'll take them. <laughs> exactly. This is what happens. <laughs> okay, Let me say, how do you distribute? <laughs> so we end up coming with all sorts of interesting and, and hopefully much fairer distribution schemes, but it's all a bit, you know, it's all a bit theoretical. I still like the idea of a, of a, of a transnational currency, but um, to do that again, I'd have to feel like it was not going to be just a clone of the existing cryptocurrencies. It would be something better.
0: Yeah. Uh, so look forward then for me. Um, what do you see the next couple of priorities for you over the next twelve months, eighteen months? You know, what are you? Get? Couple of priorities. <laughs> we have more than two. Uh,
1: well, the, the top, the top three. <laughs> uh, in the next six months. <laughs> you should take us into separate rooms, interview us separately, and see if we come up with the same answers. <laughs> okay.
3: um, so the I'm going into this in my talk at the end of the day um, in more detail, but the the primary things we're doing right now are around completion and finishing the design that we laid out in the original tech white paper. So Corda works today and people are live with it. Um, there are parts of the technology like the deterministic Java virtual machine, um, SGX and so on, that are not so important in the very earliest days of small deployments, but they matter as we try and scale up to bigger networks, more apps, more data, that, you know longer chains of custody and things. And all this is the the components are assembled on the shop floor. Now we have to plug them all into Corda itself. So a lot of the the, the biggest priority
0: is um, maturity, um, completion, uh, you know, finishing what we started. Does that mean that you're viewing SGX as a weakness or a strength of Corda as a platform going forward? No, it's
3: going to be a strength. I mean, it's not switched on today. Yeah, um, we've developed a lot of the core technology, and, and it's incredibly flexible. There's mm-hmm. a lot we can do. Um, I think. You know, we're going to integrate that, switch it on, and we'll be able to say, we've encrypted the global ledger. I mean, if people, if the users opt in, I say, we, we will do this, we will do that, of course. And so what do you say to to critics
0: get to of the SGX approach? There were a number of bugs with SGX yeah. in the early days. well, I, uh,
3: you know, so um, those, are, uh, those bugs have been found by university researchers who have invented, you know, an entirely new class of attacks against all CPUs. So mm-hmm. that that makes me feel pretty good about the rest of SGX, to be honest. Yeah. Like, yeah. If that's the easiest way to attack it, then, then you know, it's, it's pretty strong. Um, I would say that people often end up comparing this technology against a theoretical ideal. Um, that's the thing that a bit annoys me a, a little bit as an engineer. They'll say things like, yes, but why don't you do zero-knowledge proofs? And I say, well, there's there's only one system that actually has integrated that, um, which is ZeroCoin, and it can only do one thing, and you can't launch any other apps on it. They don't support smart contracts with the zero-knowledge proofs. It only does that sort of token and only in exactly one way, and then the users don't actually use it, it turns out, because it's too slow. <laughs> Um, so, I, I look and I say, "Well, is, is you know, for what we want to do, where we have many apps and many of them are not Bitcoin-type tokens, and smart contracts are not just a, a nice optional extra; they're actually fundamental." Um,
0: I don't see any other technology uh, and again is doing that's this. the engineering approach. you get I have a set of requirements I've built to that set of requirements. Yeah. It was interesting though that the South African Reserve Bank did do something with um, zero knowledge proofs and whisper and, and I think um, it was was it Peter Munnings and those guys that did that stuff did you guys do you see that Colin? Um, they did. Um, they got ten transactions a second. Um, doing well, that's better than what I've heard. If they're doing true generic zero knowledge proofs, that's. A, I think there was stocks record. and there was a whole bunch of. They were using whisper for the messaging. And there was a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Something to look at, um, which you heard it here on the podcast. Um, yeah, it's, it's I, mean, I,
3: I read the research papers. I follow it. There's a there's a bunch of issues. So one is that. Obviously, there's performance issues, but also people tend to assume that zero-knowledge-proof technology is, is perfect and robust as regular cryptography and that it won't have bugs and that bugs only affect something like SGX, which, by the way, all those bugs are fixed now. They're just software upgrades to patch, so they're no different from any other software bug. And, and in, in a sense, they're not even bugs because, like I said, this is like a whole new you know design space that people didn't even realize. Uh, no CPU designer has built a chip that is resistant to these things. It's really a new space in CPU research. You know, there have been bugs found in zero-knowledge-proof algorithms um, that allow you to break the algorithm. And people tend to associate cryptography with unbreakable based on RSA, you know, being very secure still after 20 years. But that's like the earliest, it's very simple cryptography compared to what's happening now. This stuff doesn't have 20, 30 years of study behind it. I think
1: also Mike's probably being a bit modest. So the the, the first wave of, um, of, of attacks against um, microprocessors, the whole sort of meltdown, specter stuff, the side-channel attacks it wasn't that Mike's particularly prescient but he anticipated them I remember we, we, when we first oh, saw yeah, the, the meltdown inspector yeah, yeah. pieces um, and, and Mike did two things one he said um, well we know about this if, if, did it, there's nobody read page 174 of the SGX manual where it actually, where it actually says SGX is not side channel resistant yeah. oh well, by the way remember that thing I told you about from my summer holiday the year before last where I came back from the beach with a design for this thing called oblivion uh, well that's needed because we need to make sure we're side channel resistant and, and he'd already anticipated the yeah, words yeah so, so, okay.
3: yeah so the exact, okay. the, the exact nature <laughs> of the exact way things like Spectre work um, were new, but uh, actually just a month earlier, before that stuff hit the news, I'd given a training talk to the entire R3 development team. Uh, it was called Advanced Cryptography, and it covered um, side channel attacks on CPUs. So um, things like targeting, uh, you know, um, exploiting the branch target buffers and things like that, and exfiltrating data through cache side channels. The Spectre attack, the Meltdown attack built on earlier research. They weren't entirely unanticipated that it was it was impressive what was achieved and and they used a, they combined that stuff with new techniques. we had already anticipated this and the strategy we use with embedding a JVM into the enclave is, is partly motivated by the desire to automatically recompile things in such a way they're resistant to side channel attacks. Can can we break this down and explain it like I'm 5? What is a side channel attack? A side channel attack. <laughs> 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 Let me I've never tried to do this before. Let's see if I can do it. Um, <laughs> is a way of uh, reading data out of a computer system you shouldn't be able to read. You can't change data with a side-channel attack, but you can access data you shouldn't be able to access by not by directly defeating any security system, but by doing things you're allowed to do and then timing how long they take. So it turns out that and this is completely unintuitive, and which is why some of the, the issues that Spectre and Meltdown exploit have been in these chips for decades. And they surface in all of the manufacturers, not just Intel. Um, and they've been there a long time. And no one realized uh, for the longest time that they could be exploited because it's so unintuitive. You can read things just by timing how quickly you can do things you, you are allowed to do. And this works because CPUs do a lot of optimizations on the fly to make th- software run faster. And they, they do different things at once, right? So you can run multiple programs at once on a computer. And by setting things up in a way that's just so, um, if you can get a program to do some – process some data you can't read, you can then – run your your own code as well and then time how long you do certain operations and in that you can learn things statistically about the data that you can't see and by doing lots of runs and using a lot of statistics you can end up learning what some of that data is um, the way to eliminate side channel attacks therefore is to ensure that um, you know the timings of what uh, the attacker is able to do don't change depending on what what the victim program is able to
0: do Interesting. Um, so we went down a rabbit hole, a very exciting rabbit hole. Um, but I'm going to pull us back out. Yeah, sure. Um, fair um,
1: enough. <laughs> I was going to give you my my uh, my, my completely non-technical answer for what. Oh, well, you may,
3: Richard may <laughs> well have a better answer. Yeah. Uh, so
1: I've got thirty seconds. So go. does anyone remember that childhood um, little puzzle? You um, you're in a dark house. You're downstairs, and you're, there's three light switches in front of you. And you're told one of them controls the lights in the bedroom upstairs, um, but you don't know which one. You can do whatever you like downstairs. But after you've done whatever you like, you can turn the switch on or off. You can sort of sit and you sit downstairs stand do whatever you like. Um, once you've done that, you can go upstairs and, and open the door and then you need to then pronounce you know, which of the three light switches controls that light. You but had a
3: weird childhood.
1: <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> I never hit this <laughs> by the but, but you can't tell from downstairs. It's all dark. The curtains are closed. You've got no eyes. You can't tell. So if one of the switches has turned the light on, you don't know. You can't see. It's a complete secret hidden from you. So the question is, how do you figure it out? And the answer is, um, and this is back as a child, back with old incandescent bulbs, you turn on the first switch, leave it on for a minute or so, then turn it off. And then turn on the second switch and go upstairs. If the light's on, you know it's the second switch. But if the light's off, you feel it. And if it's warm, it was switch one. And if it's cold, it was switch three. So even though you couldn't see it, the fact that you could feel the temperature, you learned something uh, because there was this this side channel that the heat told you something that was not visible to you, even though the room was completely closed. And so information had leaked out from that process. Interesting.
0: Uh, Richard, thank you for that. And also, where are you going next? Twelve months, eighteen
1: months. Right. So um agree with Mike. It's um it's you know it the way I think of coder is it's almost like a um you've got a you've got the sketch, which was you know my hand wavy, the the architecture working group's hand wavy sort of outline of what coder might be. Mike came in and said, actually no, let's make this rigorous, let's actually write some code and prove what can be done. And um, what we've shipped is you can almost imagine the first the first wash of colour and it and it, it we've we've not we've not filled in all the sides, but the, the bulk of it is there. Um, we've now got we've now got to finish it off. So we have to add hardware security module um, support as an example to the enterprise platform. Um, on the Big side, we've got to make it run more performantly. We've got to make it work for large deployments. On the small side, we have to make code much more consumable by people who do very small numbers of transactions. So it's kind of like optimizing it for both big and small. Um, and then it's you know, we've got customers in production. We've got more customers getting into production. It's transitioning to make sure we've got the right balance between delivering new features while supporting the existing customers and making sure that we run at the right speed so that we're continuing to innovate, but not, but not, um, but continuing to innovate, but not f- leaving people behind or forcing people to upgrade too quickly. Getting that balance right.
0: Gentlemen, thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Colin.